if you guys have your Bibles with you tonight, I just want to invite you to open up to Psalm 70, and we're going to continue working our way through the, the book of the Psalms. We're going to actually close out the second book, prayerfully, tonight, um, and uh, finish up the Psalms uh, that have been laid out for us by David. <clears throat> Maybe look at one tonight, might have been... Uh, Written by his son, probably David's words, but that David writes uh, for us. So as we look at it, one of the exciting things as we look at the 70th Psalm is this understanding. Oftentimes when we come to the imprecatory Psalms, I I want you to remember this part. We we hear David say things, get them God, basically God, go get them. Get the bad guys, the guys who are after me, the guys who are messing up my life. but what I want you to <clears throat> glean from that is that David's not acting on his own. He's king. He can go grab a sword and go whack the dude's head off. But instead, he's asking God for favor. He's asking God to go before him. He's asking God to, to move. And he waits on the Lord to do what God's going to do. Uh, one of the greatest pictures of that we see when, when David's leaving Jerusalem and He's being chased by Absalom. And on his way out, there's a fellow named Shimei. Shimei never really liked David. And so he curses David as David's leaving the city. He just stands up on another hill and, and has nothing good to say about David. And while he's cursing David, the king, Abishai, who's one of David's mighty men, looks over at David and says, Hey, David, just let me go cut that guy's head off. And David says, No. God... Might have put him there so I could hear what he has to say to me. So what David would do is say, God, you get him. I don't got to do it. You do it. And one of the important things that we can learn from that is that very concept that says, I don't have to, I don't know for you guys, how many times have you tried to solve a problem in your own life and, and made it worse? I know I've done it a lot. And there's many times where I wish I would have waited for what God was going to do instead of taking things into my own hands. So <clears throat> there's, there's like a, it's really kind of like walking the, the razor's edge because there's a fine balance there being sensitive to God's leading, right? Because sometimes God says, okay, I want you to move or I want you to go or I want you to do this. Or I want you to do that. But he's going to do that as we spend time in his word and we spend time in prayer. Waiting on him. What would you have me do? But in the meantime, we want to follow that example that David gives us. God, you do this. <clears throat> God, you move. God, you take care of the issue. It's, it's not something I have to do. And so I want you to kind of look for that as we go through those imprecatory psalms. Look, in, in uh, Psalm 70, he says, Make haste, O God, deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. So he's crying for help, and he wants God to help him now. Now, we've all been there, right? We all prefer when God acts swiftly, as opposed to the times when God says, In a minute, wait. Wait, it's not, not right yet. Wait. The waits are hard. It is okay to ask God to move swiftly, to make haste. But it's important as we ask Him that we remember what David did next. He waited. He wants the Lord to move with haste. He wants God to move 
in, in his favor and deliver him and take care of the bad guys. But he wants God to do it. He doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to get in the way. <clears throat> he doesn't want to mess it up. He wants to be directed by the Lord and allow God to, to have the praise for the victory that we see all through the Psalms. He says in verse 2, let them be ashamed and confounded. So he wants them <clears throat> to be disappointed. That's that, that word ashamed. When we look at that word scripturally, we're looking at the concept of disappointed. You guys have seen, uh, like remember Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God and the salvation. I'm not ashamed. That carries the idea of I'm not disappointed in what Jesus has given me. And the same way as we look here, he says, I want my enemies <clears throat> to be disappointed and confounded. The ones who seek my life. They're trying to get me, so God, <clears throat> you, you confound them, disappoint them, so they don't get me. Let them be turned back and confused. Uh, let them, it's, it, the, the picture of being turned back is like, you're, you think you're about to get something, <clears throat> and you just come over the rise, and... It, it's not what you thought it was. And it, you're appalled and you want to go the other way. So David's saying, man, they, they want to get me and they're chasing me. And Lord, when they get close to me, let them look at me and just go, that's not really what I want. And turn around and go the other way. So he's asking for them to be confused, confounded, appalled, disappointed. Don't let them have that <clears throat> victory in my life. And what is it that they all have? They, they desire his hurt. They seek his life. So let them be turned back because of their shame, who say, aha, aha. You put whatever you want in there, the, they stick out their tongue at me, they mock me, they, they, that's a concept of, <coughs> of the Hebrew word that we can't really translate, so we say, aha, aha. It's like a guy cursing at him or, or shooting out the lip. You've seen that in the scripture before. They shoot out their lip toward me. It's a, it's a gesture. We have gestures today. They don't translate, right? The Bible had gestures back then too that, that don't necessarily translate. But the idea is <clears throat> it's their shame. It's their, it's their uh, uh, attempt to degrade or attack him. But then in verse 4 and 5, he focuses on his help. Now this is what... David is always so good about. David is going to focus on a problem. And he's going to say, God, I need you to, to get these guys. I'm not going to act on it myself. I'm going to trust you to do it. But he always begins to turn his eyes toward the Lord before he finishes. Before he finishes his prayer. And I would, I would, I would say this is a great pattern for us to follow. Before we finish our prayer, get your eyes on the Lord. Start to, to remember who he is and what he's done. Focus on him and his beauty and, and what he has already done for you. Because when we leave our prayer that way, we're encouraged. When we leave our prayer just focused on the hurt and the hang up and the hardship, then a lot of times we're, we leave the prayer still discouraged. So we want to get our eyes on the Lord. Look what he says, verse 4. <clears throat> Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. The idea is what it is when you have wrapped your hand around that treasure that you seek. Whatever that treasure is for you. The idea throughout scripture is that we would learn that Jesus Christ is our treasure. He needs to be our heart's desire. Think about what it is that God is looking for from you. The, the Bible tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 6. 
that the Lord wants us to love Him with all our heart. So think a little bit about that. God says, I want you to love me with all your heart. What's He talking about? The seat of our emotions, right? Uh, He says, I want you to love me with all your soul. That was a, a word that spoke of life, that your life was in Him. I want you to love me with all your strength, your physical power. And I want you to love me with all your mind, your intellect. By the time we go through it all, what we're seeing is God is looking for all of us. Not Not sometimes we want to give God a corner of ourselves or a piece of our lives or a part. But he's saying, no, I want all of you. I want your intellect. I want your physical strength. I want your very life. I want your emotions. I want everything that you are. I want it all. And when we reach out and attain that treasure <coughs> that we're longing for, he's saying, let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. So it's like when they, when they reach out and they hold on to you as their treasure, let them find satisfaction, satiation. We, a lot of people spend a lot of time chasing a lot of dreams. I've had lots of dreams. I've, I've, had, I've actually uh, achieved some of them and lost some of them. And, and, but what I discover in it, once you lay a hold of it, it starts to lose its luster. All of a sudden, it's not as big a deal as it was before. I, I, I shared last time one of the chief dreams and goals in my life was to get a ring a championship ring in football, coaching football, working kid. I worked with kids from from just about junior high all the way through <clears throat> high school, and uh, it took us four years to get to the game. and And uh, it, and I bet we spent probably total <clears throat> eight or nine years working toward that goal. And I have it; it sits in a little basket on my on my dresser. It's white gold, big old gaudy championship ring. And I'd look at it just to remind myself how important that was once. I never wear it. I look at it. I I remember the kids and the things. And I'm, I'm not saying there's bad memories about it. But now that, or once I had it, it didn't have the same luster. But, when I... Am, am holding on to the treasure of Jesus Christ and never loses its luster. Let those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. <clears throat> because it, it is that relationship satisfies. It doesn't matter. Uh, we all go through, through patterns in life. I don't know. I go through patterns in life. So maybe I'm spending a ton of time studying and I really feel like God's opening up His Word to me. And I'm excited and I'm enjoying what God's showing me. And then I'll go through a season where I kind of lose focus and uh, I'm watching too much TV. And, I, and I'm thinking, oh, I forgot how important that treasure was. It turned that thing off a little bit. And we're coming into one of those seasons I battle with now. It's uh, coming into the fall. And they're going to start throwing this oblong ball around. And teams are going to start playing that I love to see lose. <laughs> yeah, it's just like that. <clears throat> Only different. 
So, I have to guard that because I want to keep my treasure the treasure. And that treasure is Jesus Christ. He makes me glad. He helps me to rejoice. Let those who love your salvation say continually, let God be magnified. The idea is that God would be magnified in your life. That God's always growing. The centrality of your relationship with God is something that can always expand, always grow. You can always learn more about Him, understand more about Him, grow in that. And so God can continuously be magnified in your life. Whereas those other things actually get smaller. That which was such a big goal one time, it, it shrivels up a little more every year. One day I won't be able to find that silly ring. I don't even have the old mirrors from my Harley anymore. (laughs) There's a lot of things that have come and gone that don't have the shine. But my relationship with Christ, it does. And I want God magnified in my life. I want that part of my life always growing. He says, while God's being magnified in verse 4, then you have that little word, but. You guys see it? But means strong contrast. Unlike God growing in importance in my life, I am poor and needy. I I just got to remember in my life, and I think it's important for all of us to kind of hold on to it. I I don't want to run the idea that we just, you know, say how bad we all are. But I want us to be honest with ourselves and with God about how every part of our life is stained with sin. When David says, I was completely born in sin, he's saying, every part of my life is stained by it. My emotions, my reason, my intellect, my flesh, all of my life, every area of my life, sin affects. So it's hard for me to say, I'm going to trust in me, or my ability to reason through a problem, right? Or I'm going to trust in my emotions, right? Because my emotions would never lie. Right? We all know that. Emotions always tell the truth. Maybe for you guys. My emotions lie all the time. My body lies all the time. Earlier today, I was sure. I was within five minutes of perishing, starving to death. (laughs) But as you can see, I have not missed too many meals. I'm doing okay. So... But my body's saying, oh, we've got to have this. Gotta, You've got to get something to eat. You're, you're, you're not going to make it through the day. Yeah, trust me. I think my lunch was the size of Daniel. I ate and ate and ate and ate. <clears throat> and then I, I thought, oh, that's not so good. I need the Lord to be magnified. He needs to grow in me. I don't need to grow around him. So <clears throat> we have to deal with some of those things. But. We want that. We want to recognize. Look, I, every part of my life is staying in sin. My emotions lie. My, my reasoning. I can't trust my reasoning, but I can trust God's word. I have that foundation that tells me where I can hold on to. So I am poor. And I am needy. But what am I poor and needy for? I'm poor and needy for him. <clears throat> for his presence. For his word working in my life. That's what he says in the very next line. You are my help. And my deliverer. We have to hold on to that. This psalm is actually a repeat from Psalm 40. And when we we look at at, at there, as we look at this one, 
what he's saying is that, that what I need to get through the circumstances is God's help. I need him. He's my help. I need him. He's my deliverer. I need him. I am poor. I am needy. I am not as strong as I think I am. I'm not as good as I think I am. I don't think as well as I think I do. I need Him to deliver me. I need Him to help me. It's God who carries me through. And then he cries, the last part of his prayer, O Lord, do not delay. So he wants God to move. And he wants God to move quickly. And he wants God to move and deliver him. But he's waiting for God to do it. So as David cries out, as David makes these prayers, we want to remember, we want to recognize, hey, that's good. That's okay to ask God to move now. But the next part of asking God to move now is to wait. And if five minutes later I got to pray again, pray again. Do you know that God does not get tired of hearing your voice? Any more than I get tired of hearing my kids or my grandkids. It doesn't matter how many times they come running in, jump up on my lap, and say, Papa, I want. So it doesn't matter. They can say, I want whatever. I don't get tired of hearing it. It doesn't mean they get it. But I don't get tired of hearing from them. I don't get tired of hearing from my son. He calls. I don't get tired of hearing from Joe. I don't get tired because we care, right? God loves us infinitely more than we love others. And he doesn't get tired of hearing from you. Even when it's to ask him to deliver you. How do I know that's true? There's like 72 Psalms of David asking God to help. And they're in the Bible. If God didn't want that, he'd have cut that out. Don't you think? Let's lose those 70. But those are the ones. Those are the ones. God cares. And he longs for that. Now, we move into 71. In Psalm 71, we have a prayer of confidence. Prayer of confidence. Look what he's saying in the Lord as he's, as he's <coughs> crying out in praise. He says, in you, O Lord, I put my trust. So he begins with a proclamation of faith, right? How's it start? In you, O Lord, in you, God. Again, we look at capital L-O-R-D. You guys know he's using God's proper name, right? So he's saying Yahweh, Jehovah, whatever you, whatever you feel like God's proper name is, he's using it. In you, oh Lord, I put my tr- I trust in you. So before I go into all this prayer, before I go into all this praise, before I go into all my issues, I just want you to know, God, I trust you. I'm confident in you. And what you're going to do. Let me never be put to shame. Again, the idea. I don't want to be disappointed. Don't let me have disappointment in my heart. Because that is a a symbol of sin in my heart against God. Because God, we should never be disappointed in. He says, deliver me in your righteousness. So he's, again, God, I, I need your deliverance. I need help. We never run out of those psalms. So deliver me. But how is he going to deliver me? In your righteousness. God is never going to deliver us in our own. The Bible is relatively clear on how much righteousness we have. 
So the, 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 the prophet Isaiah told us, our righteousness is as filthy rags. Right? So not so good. And that's our best. The best that we can give is, is low. Why? Why? Is, is it just a random thing I want to say, well, I'm just not a very good person? No. What's he saying? Your righteousness is stained by sin. Your reasoning is stained by sin. Your thoughts and your processes you go through and your emotional life and every part of you is stained by sin. So what does that mean? That means sometimes when I think I'm doing things, uh, I really don't have that all that great a motive behind it. I can't trust in my heart. What did Jeremiah say about the human heart? The, it's wicked, right? And then Jeremiah says, who can know it? And the point is, you can't. You don't know your own heart. But God says in the very next verse, I know your heart. He says, I know. I know you. And he wants to move and work in and through us in that. But he wants us to recognize his deliverance comes through his righteousness, not ours. That's why Isaiah 55 says, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. The point that he's making is, look, I know you think you know what you need. But I actually do. And I know that, that this circumstance or this issue, it feels bad and it feels wrong. And it, but I just, just trust me. Just trust me. And that's how he started, right? In you, O oh Lord, I put my trust. Don't let me have an attitude that says, I'm ashamed. I'm disappointed. Keep my heart, my life, my eyes focused on you because you deliver me in your righteousness. You do it your way. And your way is always best. Because I think I know, but my reasoning is affected by sin, right? My ability to comprehend what God's doing is affected by sin. <clears throat> so he says, it's your righteousness. You'll deliver me in your righteousness and cause me to escape. And what's he talking about? Where's, where's he want to escape from? Where do you want to escape from? What do you want set free from? can be anything, right? The problems, the troubles. You know, most mornings we wake up wishing we were someplace else. You know, uh beach in Tahiti would be nice. Somewhere where phones didn't work. Nobody could give you bad news. All the things that are out of shape in your life were in shape, right? So he's saying it's it's the righteousness of God that delivers us, that helps us escape those things. What we think is going to help us escape those things is getting actually oftentimes to indulge in sin. What would really help me with this is if I could just have this thing. I, 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 the Bible says I shouldn't have it, but, but if I had it, I'll be happy. And that's a lie that's been told from the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 2. Did God really say you shouldn't? Come on. What's the big deal? You won't die. That 
same attitude prevails. What is it? Sin. So what do we need delivered by? The righteousness of God. We need delivered from our sin. We need delivered from that attitude in our life. We need to escape our enemy. So he says, incline your ear to me. It's like, turn toward me, God. Listen to me. Listen to my prayer and save me. And then he describes what that salvation would look like. Be my strong refuge to which I may resort continually. Now the idea of being my strong refuge is that strong tower. It's a, it's a place where you could run to and you didn't have to be afraid of anything. Like I could, if I could just get in those doors. You guys ever had dreams like that where you're running from something you don't really know what you're running from but you just know i got to get away. But usually in that dream, you're running and you're not really getting anywhere. And you're trying to get to a place where you know you're going to be safe, but, but I, I, I can't get there. Usually shortly after that, you wake up. Well, the idea is, is I want to be in that strong tower. I want to be in that place. As soon as I go through the door, I'm safe. And what the psalmist is saying, Lord, I, I, I want you to be the place, my safe place. Where, where all these other things in my life just kind of fall to the side. I want you to be my safe place. That strong refuge where I can always go. For you have given the commandment to save me. I just want you to notice in that line, that's all past tense. He's, He's praying... I want you to be my strong refuge and I want you to deliver me and I trust in you, God. And then you can see that trust because he gives this past tense. You, you've given. You've already given the commandment. Well, if God gives a commandment, what happens? Yeah, it happens, right? He said, let there be light. And was it a couple days later? Was it right then? Man, just like that. So when God gives a commandment, it's done. And what David is saying here is you've already done it. I know you've already saved me. I just trust in you. In you, I'm safe. In you, I'm secure. You have given the commandment to save me. Why? Because you are my rock and my fortress. The picture of the rock is not like that thing you throw. The picture of the rock is like the rock of Gibraltar. You guys ever seen the rock of Gibraltar? Big, giant rock. It's not going anywhere, right? It's a, it's a symbol of, of uh, stability. So when he says, you're my rock, you're my fortress, he's saying, you're that place I can hold on to, and I don't, I don't have to worry. It's not, you're not washing away. You're not going away. You're not going to fail. I can hold on to you, and I can trust, and I can find my safe place in you. So I'm just going to hold on. Does that mean if I hold on to Christ, I'm not going to have pain? I won't have suffering. I won't have hard things in my life. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying, if you hold on to me, you'll always have something to hold on to in those times. Through those times. How many times, does the Bible say you won't walk through the shadow of death? What does it say? Yea, though I walk. So, that's pretty much a guarantee, right? I will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But what's the next promise? You are with me. I don't got to do it alone. I can hold on. 
He's my rock. He's my <coughs> fortress. In verse 4, So deliver me, O God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the hand of the unrighteous and cruel man. Deliver me. God, I just get me through this. Get me through this circumstance. Get me through this trial. Get me through this struggle. In verse 5, For you are my hope. Look, if we don't have God, we don't have nothing. If I have the Lord, I have all kind of hope. All kind of opportunity. Earlier today, I got a chance to to sit with, uh, with Marianne, who is awaiting the call of Jesus to go home. And she's pretty excited about it. And we sat down, we read through Revelation 21 and 22, talking about what heaven's going to be like and what she has waiting for her. And we lay all those things out. Now, that's her hope. Last week, I went to go be with another lady from our church named Sherry Baker, who had lung cancer. She doesn't have lung cancer anymore because she's with Jesus. Mercifully, God took her. I thought she looked great a week ago when I saw her. Um, and uh, But God took her quick. Now, she don't have lung cancer no more. What hope you got without God? What hope you got? He gives us hope. The psalmist says, man, you're my hope. One of my favorite verses to read to the, to the people when, when I know they're getting ready to go to Jesus is a section in Revelation where Jesus says, See, I make all things new. I love it because <clears throat> he's saying, Look, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more goodbyes. See, I make all things new. It's it's God's promise. I'm going to make it all better. I'm going to make it all right. Just come to me. And I'll tell you, people who get it and have that hope, they die well. I've been at the other beds. People who, who have that relationship with Christ, they die well. They have hope. When you have none, this is all there is. It's very disappointing. But when you have the truth, what God's word lays out for us, he becomes the rock and the fortress and our hope. You are my hope, O Lord God. You are my trust from my youth. By you I have been upheld from birth. You are he who took me out of my mother's womb. My praise shall be continually of you. Saying, Matt, Lord, I, you, I learned about you from my youth. Uh, when, I, when I was born, you were there. I'm with you all the way through. Man, I'm just, it's you and me, God, till the wheels fall off. And he's... He's in. He's like, man, you were there. 
By you I was upheld. You were there at my birth. You were there in my youth. Now think about David, youth, youth. He had a couple of battles when he was a boy, didn't he? Well, he had some pretty substantial ones. Oh, let's see. With his bare hands, he killed a bear. Uh, You want to know what that would be like? Just go to YouTube and type in, you know, kill a bear by hand. Well, something will come up. It might not come out so good, but it'll give you an idea what that'd be like. No? And then if there was another one, not just a bear. What was the other one? A lion. Oh, yeah, just a couple of little things, right? It's not a house cat. A lion. And a bear when he's a kid. And then just in case that wasn't enough, you have this battle with uh, Goliath. He's probably 15, 16 when it happens. So, was God with him in his youth? Yeah. He, did he beat the lion and the, and the lions and tigers and bears? Did he beat them because he's just so good? He spent a lot of time working on a sling. I, I sat... 24 yards away from a bait barrel with a bear with a bow. And I'm not sure how comfortable I felt. Take the bow away and give me a slingshot, I promise you. <laughs> that ain't happening. So he, he gets him with a his slingshot. He fights him off. He's delivered from Goliath. But it's not because he's so great. Who was with him? God was with him. He was with me in my youth. He was with me in my birth. He took me from my mother's womb. My praise shall be continually of you. Remember, we praise what we love. Praise what you love. If you don't love it, you don't praise it. If you love it, you praise. You love the Lord, you praise Him. You love your children, you praise Him. You love your mother and father, you praise him. David loves God. So he says, my praise shall be continually of you. Then he says, I have become as a wonder to many. Wasn't he? What did they sing about David? David has killed his tens of thousands. Saul killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. You don't think he was a wonder? He was in the choir. He was a, when I was in high school, the dudes, the kids, sorry, Amber, the kids in the band were not the tough kids in school. The kids in the band were the kids in the band. They were like their special little group. But when I played football at Ukaipa, it wasn't like we didn't come to school and go, oh, no, dude. I was a little afraid. I was in the bus with a kid from the band. No, it wasn't that way. But that's who David is. He's a kid in the band. He's a kid in the band. Who just happened to kill a lion, a bear, and Goliath. And if you think it's because David was all yoked, super big, then you've got a twisted up view of scripture. I bet some of you think Samson looked that way. I know Hollywood does. Every time they make a Samson movie, who do they pick? Some all yoked out, crazy, 
buff dude. Really? So when this crazy yoked out buff guy goes in and kills a bunch of guys with a jawbone of a donkey, you don't think people would have said, yeah, well, look at him. You seen how big that dude is? Of course he killed all those guys. What do you think Samson looked like? Scrawny, skinny, weak. There was When people looked at Samson, there was no reason. They'd look at him and go, man, that dude's going to whoop us. No, they look at him and go, that's a joke. Look at that little bitty guy. We got him. And then he whooped them all. What was the point? So that all praise and glory would go where? To God, right? Because God was his strength. So you think David was different than that? You think you think David had it all together and he was the, the man's man's man? And I, I think the men that were in his army who were the mighty men of David followed him because he was a, he was a great leader, because he, because he was bestowed with the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. But there was nothing special. So when, so when David says, I have become a wonder to many, people look at David and go, you're David? Like you guys ever seen those movies where the hero shows up and they go, oh, you're David? I thought you'd have been bigger. Yeah, no, this is me. <clears throat> That's all there is. He says, I've become a wonder to, went to many, but strong contrast, unlike the wonder, as people look at David, he says, you, God, are my strong refuge. David is saying, they look at me and they wonder, but you're my strength. You're my deliverer. You're my hope. You're the one who carries me through. And the thing is, guys, God still works that way today. God still moves that way today. The problem is sometimes we spend more time exalting ourselves than humbling ourselves. And allowing God to do what God did for David. He says, let my mouth be filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. So what's David saying? Look, people look at me and they sing songs about me. They got all this stuff. But God, I don't want to be holding on to all this stuff people say about me. I want to be pointing to you. You're my strength. And and how am I going to point to you? It's not the attitude that says when people come to David and say, oh, David, you're so great. And David saying, no, not really. I, I suck. God's good. That's not what David's saying. He says, what I'm going to do, I'm just going to point to you. I'm going to say, I'm going to say, man, you know, those things that we did and all that stuff, we did that because God was with us. God's so strong. And then he says, I'm just going to praise you. Your praise is always going to be on my lips. Your glory, I'm always going to be talking about. Then everybody gets it. Everybody's able to to glean what's going on. Now, as we look at his life, it's it's like he's rehearsing, right? He just a little while talked about his birth and his youth. Now he's old. Look what he says. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. I'm getting kind of old. I can't do the things I used to be able to do. Do not forsake me when my strength fails. I can't do it. I can't run up that mountain like I used to. I can't do the things that I used to be able to do. He says, for my enemies, they speak against me. And those who lie in wait for my life, they take counsel together. They say, God has forsaken him. And pursue him and take him. <coughs> for there is none to deliver him. They're, the, the, my enemies are saying, nah, he's old now. God's done with him. He's all used up. So then he says, oh God... Do not be far from me. Oh my God, make haste to help me. 
Let them, here's that same line, let them be confounded and consumed who are my adversaries, the adversaries of my life. Let them be covered with reproach and dishonor who seek my hurt. Look, he's saying, I, I, I don't want to take them on, God. You take care of them. You just let them be, let them be confounded, God, because you're still with me. Because the reality, David's saying, I'm, I'm still as weak as I was when I was a youth. When I was a baby, I didn't have too much strength. When I was a child, I didn't have too much strength. But God, you were with me. Now I'm old. Maybe I don't have as much strength as I used to have. But you're with me. Look what he says. Next verse, 14. The word but. Strong contrast. I will hope continually and praise you yet more and more. I'm going to hope in my old days because God, you're still here. And I'm going to praise you more and more. I'm going to cling to you. I'm going to look to you. I'm going to praise you. My mouth shall tell of your righteousness. I'm going to spend time telling stories about what you've done in my life and how you've moved and how you've you've worked through me. And I'm going to tell them about your salvation all the day for I do not know their limits. What limits? The limits of your righteousness and your salvation. There's no limits. God don't have any. And I'm going to spend all my time, my old age, telling them, I will go in the strength of the Lord God. Whenever I read this particular psalm, it always reminds me of a guy. There was this fellow that hung out with Joshua. You remember his name? Caleb. Caleb. His name, a lot of people name their kids Caleb. It's a cool name. It means mad dog. Mad dog. I always like that. Mad dog. Anyhow, he's one of two guys that don't perish in the wilderness with the children of Israel. Remember the children of Israel? They come to Kadesh Barnea to go in and take the land. God says, wherever you put the sole of your foot, I'll give it to you. But the people said, no, you, won't, you can't do it, God. You're not strong enough. You're too weak. There's giants in the land. So God said, okay, I'll wait till that generation dies and we'll go in with the next generation. But there were two people who went in and spied out the land and came back and said, we can do it. Joshua and Caleb. Joshua becomes Moses' right-hand man and ultimately is the guy who leads the children of Israel into the promised land uh, um, instead of Moses. He takes over for Moses. And that's the book of Joshua is all about him. Caleb is the old man. Caleb is old. By the time they take the land. He's old. And they go around and they're asking all the guys, okay, well, we've conquered the land. Where do you want to go? Where do you want to go? Where do you want to go? And they come to Caleb. Caleb, where do you want to go? He says, I want that mountain. How come you want that mountain, Caleb? There's giants there. And I know we can go whoop them. God's with us. He's an old man. He never quit. Never stopped. He went to that mountain and God gave it to him. Because he always believed in the power of God. And here David is saying in his old age, Hey, uh, God's with me and his righteousness and his strength, his ability. There's no limit to his righteousness and salvation. So I will go in the strength of the Lord God. I will make mention of your righteousness And yours only. So who's David always going to point to? God's righteousness, right? It's his righteousness. Was David righteous? 
Yeah, we know lots of stories about David's failures, right? So he's got he's he's got things that he fails in, but who makes him righteous? God does. Who makes you righteous? God does. It's his work in our lives. God makes us righteous. So in verse 17 he says, "Oh God, you have taught me from my youth, and to this day I declare your wondrous works." Now also when I am old and gray-headed. Some of us are starting to resemble that. A little. I'm, I'm gray-bearded. Not so much gray-headed, right? It's not that much gray hair up there, is there? No. Huh, go easy. <laughs> now also when I am old and gray-headed, O oh God, do not forsake me. Until I can declare your strength to this generation and your power to everyone who is to come. So, David, as long as you give me strength, I'm going to tell people about you. I'm going to tell people about my God, my deliverer, my hope in whom I have trusted. Also, your righteousness, O God, is very high. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? Who is like our God? My Ka. You, who have shown me great and severe troubles. Whoa. Were you expecting that right then? God, you are very high in righteousness. Your righteousness is high. You have shown me great and severe troubles. Who is in control? In the good and the bad? Rich and the poor? Sickness and in health? Yeah, he says, man, God, you have shown me great and severe trouble. And, what's he saying? You who have shown me these things will revive me again. Who brings us through the great and severe troubles? God does. The deliverer, right? Our redeemer, our savior. He brings, he allows those things in our life, but he also, if he allows it, gives what's necessary to go through it. Nothing is intended to destroy, only to empower, so that we might be able to glorify God with our lives. And that's what he's saying. He will revive me again and bring me up again from the depths of the earth. Now that is... A metaphor for the, uh, an example of the greatest struggle of all. What's the greatest struggle of all? Mankind's struggle with death. The last great enemy. No matter how much we fight and kick and struggle, we all got a day. Don't we? Or well, what if I go out and I run 20 miles a day? I, I, will I live longer? Maybe. I'm sure Jim Fix thought he would. Only people with gray hair remember him. <laughs> well, good. Don't stay any longer than you got to, Noe. We want to re- realize we got to end. There's a expiration. We have an expiration date. But that's okay. Is that something to be afraid of? Nope, because... The great and severe troubles God takes us through and he will revive us again. The last great enemy to be defeated is what? 
death. Does death hold us? Nope. The Bible says to be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord, right? We're with Him. The last great enemy is defeated. You shall increase my greatness and comfort me on every side. And also with the lute. Think of the guitar. I will praise you. And your faithfulness, O my God, to you I will sing with the harp, O Holy One of Israel. My lips shall greatly rejoice when I sing to you. And my soul, which you have redeemed, God, the Savior, the Redeemer, my tongue also shall talk of your righteousness all the day long, for they are confounded, for they are brought to shame who seek my hurt. So I know you got my back. You're going to deliver me. You're going to take me through these things in my life. And we come to the last psalm in book two. The last psalm. Oftentimes called the Psalm of Solomon. Probably what we're looking at is David's final prayer for his son. That Solomon penned, but David spoke. Does that make sense to you guys? So David is praying this or singing this psalm or praying this prayer for his son. Solomon as he's coming into kingship. But really, behind the scenes of Psalm 72 is the perfect king. The king of kings. The Lord of lords. He's going to make reference to. He says, give the king your judgments, O God. What is it that Solomon wanted? When when God gave him a blank check, what did Solomon ask him for? Wisdom to rule your people well, right? So, give the king your judgments, O God. Put that in his heart. And your righteousness to the king's son. Give your righteousness to his, to his lineage, to the line. And he will judge whose people? Your people. Who, whose people that belong to? God's people, right? He will judge your people. So the, so the people belong to God and he will judge them with righteousness. Why? Because God gave it to them. Right? God gave him judgment. God gave him that wisdom. He will judge your people with righteousness. Oh, who's the poor belong to? And you're poor with justice. So, just in case you think only the rich belong to God, or certain people, he's laying out your people and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people. The little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. Now, you, I just want you to see, you see a lot of this accomplished with Solomon. The greatest kingdom for Israel is under Solomon. They, they enjoy the fruit of all the labor of David who came before him. It's not necessarily because Solomon was such a great guy, but it was God's blessing on David and his lineage that brought the fruitfulness of the kingdom of Solomon. But if you look beyond that, he's really talking about the, the kingdom of the great king. The Messiah, the, the ruler. See, a lot of times people, when we come, especially as we, we're moving toward an election, aren't we? And we, we have a plethora of incredible candidates. Don't we? Man, uh, well, yeah, I don't know. But we got, we got a lot of guys. So let me say two things. One, I always vote. I always take it seriously because a lot of people died so I could do it. So to honor all those people who did that, I will always vote. And I will always vote the Bible. 
I don't care if the guy can get elected or not. When my vote card goes before God, I want it to say what I stood for, not who I thought could actually win. So I'm responsible to God to do what God's He gave me a right. I'm going to use it to glorify Him based on who stands by the Bible. Who, who, who is willing to allow the Bible to, to be authoritative in their life, what, what the Bible teaches. <clears throat> Secondly, we don't need another Messiah. We already got one. So if your hope is in the next king or the next president or the next election, you might as well get over that. There is a king already. His name's Jesus. When he rules and reigns, everything will be set straight. Until he rules and reigns, we got a responsibility to do the things he's asked us to do. To stay focused. He is the king of righteousness. He's the one, the scripture says, he will bring justice to the poor. You think there'll be justice to the poor before that day? Uh, I don't think so. It doesn't mean we shouldn't push for justice for the poor. But that'll come when Jesus rules and reigns. You think we're going to save the children of the needy? Are you kidding me? You watch the commercial with all the starving children and you send your money. How much of it gets to that kid? Right? You, you get that, right? That commercial wasn't free. And the people who, who put that commercial together and are asking for money, they're not doing it for free. So when is it that the needy children are finally going to get what they need? When Jesus is king. And when will the oppressors be done? When is that over? When is that? The evil empire, which is always somewhere, right? Sometimes it's us. When will that evil empire finally be put down? When Jesus is king. When the Messiah comes. They shall fear you as long as the sun and the moon endure throughout... (coughs) All generations. And then listen to this. This is a a description of what it's like when there's a good godly king in the land. So think about this being when Jesus is here. He says, He shall come down like rain on the grass before mowing. Like showers that water the earth. In his days the righteousness will flourish and abundance of peace until the moon is no more. Man, it's, that day is going to be a great day. A great day. Perfect peace. You see the same description in 2 Samuel 23. Talking about David coming into his kingdom. And how it was like fresh dew on the grass. And, and described in a lot of the same ways. And I think the, the inference here is when God is king. Now, we're a long ways from that in in our country, right? We have declared we don't want him. We won't have you rule over us. So as a nation, we've made that declaration. But as his people in the nation, can we affect our nation? Can we help our nation get on track? Sure. we got a job to do. Till Jesus takes us out, we have responsibility to the king. We have responsibility to the king. We want to fulfill that responsibility. He says in verse 8, He shall have dominion also from sea to sea. Now, what he's talking about here is a global uh, um, empire. A world empire. From sea to sea. From the river to the ends of the earth. Just in case you thought I was crazy, right? From the river to the ends of the earth. Everybody get it? We're sea to sea, river to the ends of the earth. We're talking about a global kingdom. 
Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him, and his enemies will lick the dust. Well, what does the Bible say? When Jesus comes, when he's king, every knee will, every tongue, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, right? So, so he's describing a similar thing here in the Psalms. Everyone is going to bow. The kings of Tarshish and the Isles. Probably we're talking about the, the British Isles and the area around Spain. But the point is, whenever Tarshish is, is used, the emphasis of the writer poetically is, that's the land as far away as we can go. You guys with me? So a lot of times people will take that stuff and they get crazy with prophetic stuff. But we don't have to do that. When they say Tarshish, what are they talking about? That is so far away we can't even get there. But what he's saying about it is the kings of Tarshish and the isles are going to bring their presence to the Messiah. To the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts at Saudi Arabia and the, the Arabian Peninsula, all the lands of Arabia. He's saying, all those kings are going to bring their gifts. Yes, all kings will fall down before him, and all nations shall serve him. That word for nations is goyim. Goyim, it's a word from which we get the word Gentiles. So it doesn't mean, he's not talking about Israel here, he's talking about all Nations. In fact, Jesus uses a similar term. In Matthew 24, he says, In those days, um, nation will be against nation. There will be wars and rumors of wars. Nations will rise up against nations. You know what the word is. It's not nations. It's ethnos. It's a word from which we get ethnic. Uh, kind of like the word goyim. So ethnic people will rise up against ethnic people. Much like we saw in the beginning of time, when at the Tower of Babel people were divided, now they're going to divide based on the same things, their ethnicity. You don't notice that? Just turn on the news. you got Palestinians, that's an ethnic group, wanting to destroy Jews. Arabs, when destroyed, that's a pretty common one. You have the battle between blacks and whites, don't you? We, don't we see that on the news? What about uh, with uh, uh, Mexicans or Hispanic people and whites? We see a similar thing. Isn't it interesting that Jesus said that would happen? Ethnic people will rise up against ethnic people. Wars, rumors of wars. But he says, don't worry, the end's not yet. These things must come to pass. These things must happen. This is part of the timeline for mankind laid out. He said, but when you see those things happening, lift up your head, your redemption draws near. Now, I think we take that the wrong way. Here's how we tend to take it. Oh, thank God, Lord... Get me out of here. So I get that because I would like to be out of here too. But how we should take it is I don't got much time to make a difference in the lives of people that don't know Jesus. I think that's what he's asking for. To to be busy being a witness 
King of kings. What's it say? Verse 12. For he will deliver the needy when he cries. Man, what a great king. Right? Compassionate king. And the poor also. And him who has no helper. The guy who's lonely and alone and can't do it by himself. This king's going to help him. When's the last time you saw a king do that? When's the last time you saw a king do that? When's the last time you saw a president walking by and and some trash blows by? And he stops, picks it up, puts it in a trash can. You ever seen that before? Huh. This, this king, he's going to help the guy who don't have no help. He's going to help the needy and the poor. He will spare the poor and the needy. He will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence. And precious shall be their blood in his sight. That means he's going to care about them. Look, all around the world, man don't care about man. I don't care what man says. Everybody's out for himself. Everybody's out for himself. But the king of kings, the great king, when he comes, it's not going to be that way. It's not going to be that way anymore. And he shall live. And the gold of Sheba will be given to him. And prayer will be made for him continually. And daily he will be praised. So he's got gold, prayer, and praise. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth. Oh, there's going to be enough food for everybody. On the top of the mountains, its fruit will wave like Lebanon. Man, everywhere. And those of the city (coughs) will flourish like grass of the earth. People in the city are, are going to grow just like a grass out in the meadow. A lot of grass out in the meadow, right? They're going to grow and it's going to be beautiful and they're going to get along and it's going to be a perfect place. And his name will endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun and men shall be blessed in him and all nations will call him blessed. What a glorious day. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel. Who only does wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. In verse 20, these, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. When we come to the close of the Psalms of David. But don't worry. We're almost halfway (laughs) through the Psalms. We'll keep churning. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.